Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Xi. And I'm Jolene Banks. And today's Jill's pin is a menorah in honor of uh, Israel or in support of them in defending themselves against the terrible attack that is ongoing even as we speak this minute. Jill and I joined the rest of the world in standing with Israel and mourning the dead and mourning the dead following the terrorist organization Hamas's attack on them this past weekend. And while all of this is happening, the situation here in America is not looking great because of the actions of Republican lawmakers. For one, we have no Speaker of the House, we have no U.S. Ambassador to Israel, and we still have hundreds of military officials yet to be confirmed because of Tommy Tuberville's stopping of military promotions. What does this mean for Israel and Congress's ability to support one of our strongest allies in the Middle East? What does it mean for Ukraine? And what does it mean for our own national security? Today, we are joined by Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy to help us answer these questions and give us context to the chaos going on in Congress. Krishnamurthy is currently on several powerful committees in the House, including the House Committee on Intelligence and the Committee on Oversight. The uh, district that he represents is not far from where Victor lives and when he's not at college and where I worked for Motorola. And it is um, a, includes part of Chicago, not just the North Shore suburbs. He was elected to Congress in 2018, I'm sorry, 2016. He's the first South Asian American in history to head a congressional committee. Representative Krishnamurthy, graduated summa cum laude from Princeton University with a degree in mechanical engineering and a certificate from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Seems like a strange combination, but certainly qualified him to be a member of Congress. He then went on to law school at Harvard and graduated with honors from there. He clerked for a federal judge here in Chicago and served as a special assistant attorney general to the uh, create a public integrity unit under Attorney General Lisa Madigan, uh, who succeeded, I think, the Attorney General that I served for. He also has experience in the private sector, serving as president of a research-oriented small business development technology company, and, and focused on the national security and renewable energy industries. So we are very grateful to have a man of this many qualifications join us today. Congressman, it is a pleasure to have you with us. We especially appreciate your taking time on a day like today uh, when there is so much for you to do in Congress and so much for us to try to understand. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much to, to both of you. So we have so much news to talk about, but let's start by talking about the subject dominating the news since um, the Sabbath started in Israel, and that is the deadly attack by the terrorist group Hamas. Um, but before asking you to bring us up today on that, we want to explore how the House's ousting of its speaker and failure to elect a new one will impact whether the House can conduct any business, including voting support for Israel. So sort of walk us through what the absence of a speaker means for the U.S.'s ability to provide support to Israel with resources and with what it needs. Well, it kind of handicaps our ability to do uh, legislation because the speaker really is in charge of putting legislation on the floor. 
And so floor business basically comes to a halt when you don't have a speaker. On the other hand, we are able to, um, for instance, uh, have committees meet, have hearings, have classified briefings. Um, the staff for all the committees are all working. So this morning I did my uh, classified uh, briefings uh, before I started the day and, and, and read my homework, so to speak, from over the weekend, and there was a considerable amount. Um, but, you know, we can't, for instance, do a supplemental um, uh, bill to uh, provide uh, Israel with any uh, equipment or additional aid um, unless we have a speaker. And so that's a big challenge, uh, not to mention the fact that we we don't have somebody to help us move legislation to fund the government or aid for Ukraine or anything else for that matter. So two follow up questions. One is, it is my understanding that the speaker pro tem does not have that power. He has only the power he or it could be a she only has the power to get the vote on the speaker. So I want to confirm that. And then I want to find out from you, when do you think that they will find a candidate to be the speaker? I think you're generally correct, Jill, that the speaker pro tem, his name is Patrick McHenry, uh, right. basically has a ministerial position, almost like a clerical position in the sense that he is supposed to call balls and strikes with regard to the election of the next speaker. And then that person takes over. Um, I think that with regard to the timing, uh, that's kind of out of our control right now. I think that the Republican caucus is going to meet um, today, uh, Tuesday, to try to uh, elect um, you know, their leader leadership, I should say, and, um, and then put those leaders forward on the floor for a full vote of the House. Mm -hmm. Now, as you know, the problem that Kevin McCarthy ran into early this year was that although a majority of the majority, so to speak, elected him as their leader of the caucus, um, unfortunately, that did not translate into 218 votes on the floor because there were so many holdouts within his own caucus. And of course, we had our own candidate in the House Democratic Caucus, namely Hakeem Jeffries. And I suspect we will be unified in putting Hakeem Jeffries' name forward this time as well. So I think they will start that balloting tomorrow. But at the same time, I understand that there are various machinations today uh, to try to avoid the circus that we saw at the beginning of this year when they started that balloting uh, in earnest. So that they're going to try to avoid having 15 ballots and a promise that only one member of his party could vacate his speakership. They're going to try to That's avoid right. that. Yeah. So I think so. Although, as you know, Matt Gates and, and that whole crew, uh, the seven or eight people, um, obviously used that particular provision to their advantage and, and maximize their leverage in the process. So it'll be interesting to see how they can placate this group of people while making that essential rules change to bring some stability to the House. So let's move directly to Israel because um, we have limited time. First of all, you said you had read some briefing materials. Is there anything that isn't classified that you would feel comfortable sharing with us? I, I know Victor and I are following very closely the developments in Israel. Well, Jill and Victor, I think that the most important thing that 
many of us uh, are thinking about today is how did we miss what happened? Um, how did how did intelligence agencies really around the world, of course in Israel, but also elsewhere, um, not see this coming? And that basically means that there's a huge blind spot. Something is not right with the way that we're collecting information about Hamas or about Iran or about Hezbollah and so forth, because they've had repeated meetings, apparently, with regard to planning these operations. And this wasn't done overnight. I think this was done over a long stretch of time. I think the second big question on my mind is, um, did Iran have a hand in directing these attacks? Because the um, consequences, obviously, of Iranian involvement, direct involvement, I'm not saying um, kind of their moral blessings or anything like that. I'm talking about, did they directly um, aid the effort? That has grave consequences for next steps. So what are some of the immediate next steps that you and your colleagues are looking to kind of work on? And, and what does de-escalation look like in this case? I don't know what de-escalation exactly looks like, except what I'm hoping is at the same time that Israel does what it has to do with regard to Gaza and does with it what it, what it has to do with regard to um, Hamas, uh, we keep in mind a few things. One, there's more than 100 hostages, apparently, according to public reports, um, you know, and, and that's that's an unusually large number of hostages that we've never kind of had to deal with in the past. Um, and that includes potentially Americans, although it appears that this is something that needs to be confirmed. Um, secondly, remember Hamas and Iran, for that matter, are also thinking about how they they perceive Israel is going to react and then they're going to have a response. And so we should also be thinking a couple steps ahead what is it that Iran or Hamas really wants Israel and others to do uh, that might be in their best interest, but might not be in our best interest? Um, so do they want, for instance, a, a five-front war uh, happening with regard to Israel? Um, you know, when I mean five fronts, I mean not just the Gaza Strip, but also Hezbollah in the north. Uh, then something happening within uh, like the West Bank in terms of an intifada of some kind, then potentially trying to incite Arab Israelis within Israel proper. And then, of course, trying to get other uh, militias involved, too, who may not be directly Iranian proxies. If that is exact, if that is what they want, then we have to be very careful in um you know, not necessarily giving them what they want, because that may not be in our best interest. Wow, you're painting a very yeah. bleak picture. And I, I I, mean, it's terrifying to think of that. But is there a reliable, legitimate source for Israel to negotiate with? That's one of the problems I think that has existed. Um, for many who support a two-state solution, there's no one who they can negotiate with because one of the first things that Israel asks is, will you agree to recognize the right of Israel to exist? 
And so far, no potential partner has agreed to that. So that's kind of makes it a non-starter. Am I wrong on that? Or is there a way to get around that? I don't think that you're wrong on that, except that I think that, um, you know, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank is prepared to to do what's necessary with regard to fully recognizing Israel, as long as there's a two-state solution in the offing. And indeed, that's, I think, what the Americans were trying to broker between the Israelis, the Saudis, uh, the Israelis, and the Palestinians. Some kind of a situation that would bring hope, that would bring some stability to the area. And of course, to me, uh, Hamas and um, Islamic Jihad and others uh, desperately wanted to thwart that particular type of arrangement, arrangement in part because it would further isolate Iran. And so um, in terms of going forward, I think now, you know, I think that the Israeli government is not really in any position to um, engage in extensive diplomacy, although I personally believe that they should, you know, don't put off that project, um, you know, interminably. It has to be um, out there and the Americans have to facilitate that because to me that that arrangement is exactly what the terrorists do not want. And that's what we have to do in the medium and long term to bring real stability. So I, I want to ask you about your Republican colleagues right now, because they are spreading so much mis- misinformation and lies. And one of the things that they are peddling right now is they're trying to blame President Biden um, for having some role in this um, by uh, his returning, um, I guess, to Iran, $6 billion of their money in exchange for the release of American citizens held in Iran. Talk about that situation right now and some of the misinformation on lies you're seeing from Republicans in general? Well, I think one of the things that uh, the famous Lauren Boebert, uh, expert on Middle East uh, uh, peace, said the other day is that, um, you know, that $6 billion is what funded these operations or it somehow was used. And in fact, um, this $6 billion in a bank account in Qatar has not been released at all yet. And actually, that money would never go to Iran, but it would be used for the purchase of certain humanitarian goods. Um, All that being said, that is misinformation. But the bigger issue is, let's not politicize this thing right now. I mean, I I don't see any good coming from politicizing what has happened, because there's some real work that has to be done if we are going to be able to provide Israel with what she needs to protect herself and of course to protect ourselves. And so anytime you introduce politics right now in in this type of situation, you're really hurting the chances that we can come to an agreement on on this vital issue. Is there any way that the president without Congress having a speaker and not being able to take action that he can uh, help Israel, and and I don't want to forget Ukraine, which is also pending having any help from the U.S. or additional help from the U.S. So let's broaden it to what's going to happen to both countries and the aid that we should be providing them. So in the very short term, 
uh, I have been informed that the White House has the current authorities and means to supply Israel with what it needs to uh, defend itself. Also, it it can you know continue to move, for instance, um, portions of our naval fleet into the Eastern Mediterranean to help with uh, certain operations. I think one of the biggest things that we're all concerned about is um, you know if Hezbollah for instance, unleashes rocket attacks on Israel, uh, it turns out um, that Hezbollah might have like 10 times the number of rockets that Hamas does. And so if they really got into the fight, um, that would be a big challenge for Iron Dome, uh, which, as you know, has has had its challenges in the last few days because of the sheer number of rocket attacks. Overall, I think that the administration can use certain emergency authorities, can do other things to speed up shipments and that were already appropriated or um, planned for. But in the medium and long term, both for Ukraine and for Israel, you're going to need some type of supplemental aid. Um, without it, I just don't see how they'll be able to get what they need. And our military industrial base is already stretched a little thin right now in terms of what it needs in provisioning various armaments and munitions for Ukraine, for Israel, for Taiwan and others. So I know this is for um, the Senate to handle, but how concerning is it to you that we still don't have um, a U.S. ambassador to Israel confirmed and that there's also a hold on hundreds of military promotions, which trickles down to impact thousands of service members? Um, I think it has an impact. I think it's crazy that we don't have an ambassador to Israel. I think that it's crazy that we don't have, um, you know, people filling uh, all these uh, vacancies in the military. What ends up happening is twofold. One, do those positions, especially in the military, get covered? Yes. Act, you know, people in an acting capacity cover those roles. However, what you have to understand is those people are often having to cover two jobs or more with their their in their current responsibility. So any one of us or any of one of your viewers or you know listeners will know that if you're doing two jobs with the same amount of time, you just can't devote the type of concentration and focus that's necessary for any one job to be performed properly. The second issue is, look, I think if you don't have an ambassador on the ground in a place like Israel, you don't have someone who has the, um, I'll just say it, political heft to be able to make decisions, to be able to offer insights and to be able to do what is necessary um, to leverage people's time back in Washington. Now, can Secretary Blinken do this? Absolutely. He, he can get on the phone with his counterparts, President Biden, Jake Sullivan, and others. But again, you're stretching their time thin. And while they will be able to do it um, adeptly, if you can have another person who can really kind of coordinate within Israel, who has the full respect and seniority um, to command uh, attention and and convey messages, it really helps tremendously. Of course. And 
Uh, before we run out of time, I want to shift to talk about something you mentioned earlier on, which is that even though the House cannot consider legislation, House committees can continue working. And one of the things that they have chosen to work on, despite the threat to another, well, to a shutdown, since you helped to prevent the last shutdown, but we're only, what, 30 days away from another potential shutdown. But they're going ahead with an impeachment inquiry. It's not even an impeachment. It's an impeachment inquiry against President Biden, which is, as far as I can see, based on speculation, their wishful thinking, not a shred of evidence. And you're on the Oversight Committee, which has already contributed, um, you know, I, I conducted a hearing with some witnesses. What was that like? And do Republicans have any evidence? Is there anything that could justify spending congressional time in the face of war in Israel, uh, war in Ukraine, both unprovoked attacks by larger, not necessarily larger, but by hostile forces, and a potential shutdown in our own country of the entire government. What what kind of high crime or misdemeanor could they be looking at? Um, it, I'd like to know because I didn't see any, I did not see any evidence of a parking violation, a library fine, let alone a high crime or misdemeanor with regard to Joe Biden. Now, does Hunter Biden have issues? Yes. And that's why a special counsel is prosecuting him, has indicted him. But as the witnesses admitted, um, even the Republican witnesses admitted on that day of the impeachment inquiry, um, they cannot point to even one piece of evidence of impeachable conduct by President Biden. Not only that, but none of the witnesses that were called that day were fact witnesses. They were all experts, quote unquote, who could talk about this and that, no pine on this and that without actually having seen any evidence or having provided any, um, you know, uh, factual basis for uh, why President Biden should even face, face an impeachment inquiry. Um, many Republicans have already attacked this process, uh, and they've basically said, you know, this doesn't amount to uh, anything that should uh, merit an impeachment inquiry. What do you think their end goal is with this thing? What I mean, other than pleasing Donald Trump or trying to, you know, destroy our institutions, what are they trying to accomplish with this, do you think? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with regard to the reference to Trump. I think that this is just trying to aid and abet the Trump campaign, uh, which, you know, is going to have a, a candidate who, by the time of the general election, if not before, uh, will likely have somebody who was convicted of crimes, um, certainly who's been indicted in four separate proceedings with 91 counts. And so he wants to be able to say, you know, just as Joe Biden has been impeached, uh, you know, uh, this is all just um, nonsense. And, you know, he's just as bad as I am. I've been twice impeached. He's been impeached once, et cetera. That's kind of what I think they're trying to get at. And by the way, Jim Jordan is kind of leading this effort in the House. And that's why I'm very concerned about him potentially becoming Speaker. Yeah. A good concern. Do you have 
any thoughts? Have you seen a coalescence of Republicans around either Scalise or uh, Jordan, who seem to be the two declared candidates? But um, then you hear about some others, including possibly Donald Trump. And I guess if if I can add one, I mean, it seems like McCarthy might. Yesterday, he gave a press conference where it seemed like he might be open to running again. Do you have any insight on that as well? Um, I don't. I don't know about uh, why McCarthy said that. Um, although I do, you know, somebody uh, approached me today in the gym, a Republican, and told me that you'll be surprised how many people um, within the House conference are likely to put McCarthy's name forward as the leader of the party um, because they are so upset about what happened last week and they're not going to give up on McCarthy. All that being said, I have not seen a coalescence around any of the declared candidates. Um, I would not underestimate Jim Jordan because uh, a lot of people see him as um, very close to the you know, the House Freedom Caucus and the and the elements that they want to try to control. So they feel like maybe Jordan would be the one to be able to control them, to prevent them from creating chaos in the House. Uh, but they're ignoring that Jim Jordan is likely to be a handmaiden to whatever, whatever Donald Trump wants him to do. My biggest concern, my biggest fear is that Donald Trump is going to say, shut down the government. That's what would be best for my presidential campaign, that would create the most chaos. Uh, don't fund anything in Ukraine. Uh, maybe even don't fund anything with regard to Israel. Um, and if that happens, uh, you know that will be obviously horrible for the American people. Even if it might look good um, for, it might be better for uh, Donald Trump's campaign. But that would be uh, the wrong metric. It certainly would be. It sounds a lot like what Hamas is trying to do, which is to create chaos. It's the same thing here, creating chaos, making government non-functional. And do you think the American people care at all about this impeachment inquiry? I think they care about Hunter Biden, um, but I don't think they they buy into this impeachment inquiry. Um, what do I mean by that? I think that they want to make sure that, you know, even the president's own family if he or she has done something wrong, is held accountable. But unless it's Jared and Ivanka, right? Unless it's unless it's uh, Donald Trump's relatives. But but on the other hand, when you ask them about Joe Biden, um, I'm not seeing their appetite for this impeachment inquiry at all. In fact, the last hearing, um, I gotta believe, um, really eroded any support for it because it was so bad and it actually got really panned by Republicans as much as Democrats. I, I just, I can ask you that. before you talk, Victor, I just, one thing you said, I just, as a former prosecutor feel I need to insert is that, and I am not supporting Hunter Biden's conduct. I do support his recovery efforts and his, his being on a better track now, but the crimes that he is being charged with are not crimes that a person named Joe Smith would be indicted for. Um, the taxes have been repaid, so that would not be an issue. The gun was never used. So it, if it's used in a crime, it would be something that 
a case could be brought on, but just buying it isn't any more than, or maybe as much as Donald Trump possessing a gun in a gun store is indictable. So I, I just think that we can't ever forget that Hunter Biden is being treated more harshly than an average citizen would be, and that Donald Trump's children are be tr being treated much less harshly. But let's let's move to the next set of questions. I think. Victor. Well, I, I just wanted to. Uh, you mentioned the hearing, and and I had the um, misfortune of watching that. Although it was great in the sense that you and your fellow Democrats' line of questioning and pushback during that hearing was unlike anything I think I've ever seen. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about your strategy for that hearing. And and did you feel like you accomplished your goals and 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 sort of what do you hope that takeaway is for people who may not have watched it? Well, I think that one of the things that was really um, important for our strategy or my strategy was I wanted people to understand a little bit more about these witnesses and the fact that they may not be as impartial as folks at home might otherwise think they are. Um, in the case, for instance, of the accountant, Miss uh, Eileen O'Connor, uh, I put up pictures of her professional LinkedIn page, and there's just some crazy stuff on there, including a cartoon um, that was basically, it wasn't a cartoon, it was actually a an advertisement for raising money through a telethon for the quote-unquote alternative electors, the fake electors that were indicted by the Michigan Attorney General, and uh, you know she reposted that, and then she re she also posted another um, very troubling uh, post uh, talking about the invasion that's happening right now and the you know quote-unquote engineered death spiral that um, is occurring with regard to our migrants coming into the country, um, you know, is you should just take a look at it. And it basically goes to show that these people have viewpoints and prejudices that they're bringing into their testimony and is causing their credibility to be questioned. That's an excellent point. And on the subject you just mentioned, um, the Chicago area is, as you know, of course, being heavily impacted by an influx of immigrants, uh, mostly Venezuelan. And our policy has shifted from expediting their admission and their green cards to sending flights back to take them back to Venezuela. And um, at the same time, Chicago has a very large unhoused population, but we're building housing for immigrants. Can you talk about that and what the federal government could be doing or should be doing to help cities like Chicago, but all, I, I'm not just limiting it to Chicago, to all cities, to help in this terrible crisis? Well, first of all, I, I have to say that, you know, Greg Abbott and those governors in those Southern states, shipping these people to other places, using them as political pawns in the way they are is appalling. That being said, they, they have, come to Chicago. And so I agree with Mayor Brandon Johnson, as well as Governor Pritzker, that the federal government needs to provide some aid to be able to take care of these migrants. And at the same time, under our asylum laws, they are allowed to work. And so processing their work permits or processing their work authorizations 
expeditiously will also get them off the taxpayer dole and allow them to take care of themselves even as they await their court dates. I think that's really important. Finally, um, we obviously need to secure the border. Um, the Biden administration and the Department of Homeland Security has requested additional resources for personnel, for technology, as well as for physical barriers, and we should appropriate that money. But Again, we come back to the subject that we first started out with, which is you can't do that if you don't have a speaker. You yeah. can't do that if you don't have a functioning Congress. And so making this place functional and governable is really our, it should be our top priority today and tomorrow. And I agree with Hakeem Jeffries, who, by the way, he has reached out multiple times to moderate Republicans and said, "How? let's land this plane, Okay. You know, there, there are different ways to do this. Either he can be speaker and you can get six or seven moderate Republicans to join us to elect him speaker, okay? And we can figure out a governing coalition for this remaining year and change uh, while the Republicans are in the majority. Or they can have a moderate or somebody be the speaker. But again, you need to sideline the extremists. You have to have a governing and functional majority, bipartisan majority with a rules package that takes power away from the extremists and puts it in the hands of, you know, people who really just want to get things done. And I'm not say, saying they have to be, they're, they're only Democrats. I think there are hundreds of Republicans that agree, but they're completely getting weakened and the power taken away from them by these extremists. So we have one last question for you, and hopefully it can end on a lighter and happier note, which is, you know, you are um, one of the very few, I think, Asian Americans um, in Congress right now. And luckily, um, that number is growing. But can you offer any advice for people who might be thinking about running for office? And, you know, as 2024 rolls around, I'm sure there are many people right now who see the Congress right now as dysfunctional and want to make it better. What is your advice to other Asian Americans who traditionally don't really run for office? Well, I think that they should get involved. I think it's really important that they, um, you know, work in their local communities, uh, try to, I, I think there are three things that every community, every ethnic community, every minority community, for that matter, everyone should do. One, you have to vote. Unfortunately, Asian Americans don't vote. Um, we like to talk politics, but we don't do politics. And there are various reasons for it, but we're we're not voting our numbers. Even among citizens that can vote, uh, they don't do it. So that's the first thing. Secondly, uh, we have to work on causes bigger than ourselves. Uh, oftentimes, we're very active in our local charitable organizations or churches or temples or mosques or what have you, but we're not active in political causes and that's really important um, now more than ever. And then third, it's time to run for office. Um, and, and, you know, you can run for, you know, city council or state house or state senate, or you can run for Congress. In fact, you can run for speaker this week if you want. <laughs> but, but the point is you have to get involved. And there's an old saying in Washington, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. And so it's time to pull up the proverbial seat to the proverbial table and make sure your voice is heard. Fantastic advice. And 
your background is so fascinating. And as we mentioned in the introduction, you really have done amazing things. And I hope that you will be an inspiration to Victor and to many other young people. Um, I keep saying to Victor, he should run for office. He likes behind the scenes better, but you know, maybe a few years from now, he'll feel differently. In the meantime, we're very lucky to have you in Congress and from a district so close to his home and mine. So thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, Jill. And be well. So, Jill, that was such a fascinating episode, um, but I want to turn to something that I told you about last week, which is I listened to a podcast with a woman named Lisa Blatt, who um, is the uh, woman, or she's arguing the most Supreme Court cases of any woman. She's argued, I think, 45, and she gave some advice on the podcast, which is she told people not to follow their passion, but to instead do what they're good at. Um, and I'm wondering what you think of that. And maybe we can, you know, in the spirit of, I know a lot of my friends right now who are seniors are applying to jobs and thinking about their career and their lives, maybe advice for people kind of like that. But what do you think of that piece of advice in particular? So first of all, I love when you bring me these kinds of pieces of advice and ask for me to weigh in because um, <laughs> everyone has different perspectives. I also want to say I just heard Solicitor General Prelogger on uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And oh, yeah. she is so funny. I don't know how many oh, clear cases she's argued, but I bet by the time she's done being be Solicitor General, yeah. she will outdo this. But the point is, when I argued in the Supreme Court, only a few women had ever argued in the Supreme Court. Now, I'm proud to say that the numbers have increased dramatically. So this is wonderful news. I when, when you first told me about this, I went, absolutely not, you can't. In retrospect, I think you have to do both. It is very important that you like what you do. If you are evaluating two different job offers, think about what will I be doing? Not what is my job title, but when I get to the office and I sit down at my desk, what are the tasks that I will be performing? And if you're going to hate all those tasks, even if you're good at them, you're not going to last and you're not going to be happy. I have actually always followed my curiosity, my interests, and my passions. And it has worked very well for me. And when I have been in positions where it just seemed like the next logical move, I really haven't enjoyed it as much. So hmm. I, I personally think... Yeah, you can't be bad at what you want. But honestly, my passion would be to be Bette Midler. I can't <laughs> sing with anything. I would have loved to have been a ballet dancer. And I studied ballet for a long time. Oh, but really? there was no way. Oh, yes. Edna McCray in Chicago, one of the oh, hardest wow. ever. It was fantastic. And I loved it. And I still love ballet. But I'm better as an audience member than I ever was on stage. I even went back on point when I turned 40. My oh my husband toe shoes. Wow. Yeah. I arranged for a group of associates, a general block to join me. Excuse me. This is the first time I'm ever learning about this. This is insane. I still have the toe shoes. I can wow. give them to you in a future episode. <laughs> uh, and I'm definitely passionate about ballet. Oh my but God. being passionate isn't enough. Right. Good at it is definitely essential. Yes, but yes. 
finding something with both is of course the best answer. That is, yeah, that is like the, the, you've hit a lottery. If you can find something that you're both passionate and also good at doing Um, it's, it's something that I, I think her point was that, you know, a lot of people pursue their passions, but they might not end up being good at it. And so it's more, you know, find something you're good at and then you'll probably be passionate. But I thought it was really interesting advice and very contrarian to, I think, what a lot of people um, say, but it's it's very interesting, I think. I think it's more likely that if you're passionate, you'll get good at it. Yeah, that's true. That too, that too. Um, well, I think that's a good way to, hopefully, if you're a student or you're thinking about your career in some way, maybe that will help you. And I remember when I was deciding um, a couple of internships uh, over, I guess it was two years ago, I guess at this point, um, I asked Jill for the same advice and she told me, ask an interview what you will be doing once you get to your position. And it was great advice. And when I asked them, when I asked both of the uh, offers, there was one that was very clear as to which one I should do. And um, I have no regrets. So make sure you know exactly what you're going to do when you get to the office, because if it's boring, you will be probably miserable. (laughs) So uh, um, thank you, Jill, for that advice. And we hope that you find that helpful. Um, And we also hope that you enjoyed this episode of iGen Politics. We'll be back next week with another episode, um, wherever you follow your podcast. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe to us right here on youtube.com slash Politicon, or follow us wherever you follow your podcast, whether it's Apple or Google or anywhere we are there so be sure to follow us there and like and subscribe so you don't miss an episode thanks everyone and we will see you next week